0: If you ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, you you can't help but notice that the first three, uh, although they have their own flavor and emphasis, they're they're somewhat similar. They tell a lot of the same stories. They follow similar chronology. Uh, But when you get to the Gospel of John, you notice that it's very different. It has a different style and it has a different emphasis. It even tells different stories. Whereas the other Gospels are very focused on telling us the facts about Jesus' coming and his life and his ministry. The Gospel of John is really focused in on talking about the meaning of the things that Jesus did and why he came. Whereas the other Gospels, you could say, kind of give us the big picture, the bird's eye view of Jesus' ministry. What John's Gospel does is it oftentimes just zooms in on one or two specific events. It even gives us the details of specific conversations. And it's through the details of these encounters with Jesus that we see in the Gospel of John. It's the content of the conversation they reveal to us in a very special way who Jesus is and why he came we see his personality and that's so key that we see his personality because as we've been studying around Advent and Christmas time this is what Christmas is all about this is what the Advent is all about it's this earth-shattering history defining life-changing moment in which God became a man in which God entered into the gritty reality of life in this world so that when people would encounter him when they they would encounter Jesus, they would encounter the very person of God. They would encounter God in a special way, in a way that wasn't distant and abstract, in a way that wasn't just theoretical, but in a way that was tangible, that was up close, it was practical. In the person of Jesus, what we see by him becoming a man by the incarnation is that God is not just calling us to assent to theories and ideas. He's not just calling us to dogmas and principles. He is calling us to himself as a person. He's calling us to a relationship. So here in John chapter 2, the first 11 verses, what we see here, this is the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. He comes out, this is his coming out, his first statement of who he is and why he's come. And there are three key elements to this story that I'd like you to see. Three key elements. Number one, we have a symbol of joy. Number two, we have a symbol of cleansing. And number three, we have a sign of what is to come. So a symbol of joy, a symbol of cleansing, and a sign of what is to come. Let's begin here with a symbol of joy. So here's the scene, Jesus and his disciples, they've been invited to this wedding feast in the town of Cana. This is in the region of Galilee. This is the area where Jesus grew up. And uh, and, you know, you can really tell a lot about a culture by looking at the way that they do special events, especially weddings and funerals and things like that. And really this is something which really defines a culture. It changes based on uh, every given culture. You'll see they have different traditions about weddings. And uh, and funerals and major events. Now, in the West, in America in particular, right, we have a very individualistic culture, extremely so. And we tend to see ourselves as detached units, right? No strings attached, right? Like maybe we had some family, but basically we're all just individuals standing on our own. That's how Americans tend to view ourselves, right? Uh, Detached units, we find our identity and our value in our individual achievements and our personal accomplishments. And so in America, our our weddings even reflect that who we believe we are, right? So we have things like drive-through wedding chapels. We have things like, uh, you know, eloping, people elope They have destination weddings. Here in the state of Colorado, you don't even need to have a, a wedding service, right? You can just fill out the paperwork and send it in, in the mail. I mean, why would you want to spend all that money on some big expensive gathering? Because after all, your wedding is just about you and that special someone. It's not about all those other people, right? In America, we tend to have smaller weddings uh, and we invite close friends and close family members. But in non-Western cultures, like the one in which Jesus grew up, kind of the setting for our story here, uh, what we see is a is culture which is much more communal, right? The, the people find their identity not in their individual achievements, but in their community that they're a part of. And so for a communal culture, a wedding is a community event. You know, the, last, uh, the first few years that I lived in Hungary... One of the ministries that uh, we did was an outreach to international medical students. In this town we lived in, there was a big medical university and there were students from all over the world studying there and it had an English program. And so one of my ministries, I would teach a church service on Monday nights and we had about 50 or 60 uh, medical students from all over the world, uh, mostly you know, from the Middle East, from Africa, and, and the most of them were from India. So over the years, i made a lot of Indian friends. When I got married, the best man in my wedding was an Indian guy, his name was Naveen. And when Naveen got married, I was the best man in his wedding. At Naveen's wedding, okay, let's say this. In my wedding, there were, we invited 120 people, right? Because that's what we could afford. At Naveen's wedding, there were 600 people in attendance, right? So here I am at this wedding. I'm the best man and uh, there's 600 people And I am the only white guy. I'm not kidding. The only white guy. I looked out. There was, I think I saw a Korean lady. And uh, so I'm up there giving my speech. And and of course, I made a lot of white guy jokes, which, you know, are very popular with the Indian community. They like to laugh at white people. So as I'm uh, giving my speech, I'm looking out over this crowd, 600 people, and I see this guy out there. I'm like, hey, check it out another white guy. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to, you know, once I'm done talking, I'm going to go say hi to him. So I get down from the from the stage there after I finish my speech and I walk over, you know, to the back of the room where this other white guy is. And as I get close to him to say hi, I realize he's not a white guy. He's an Indian guy who has a skin disease, right? So here I am walking up to this guy and I'm like, as I get close I'm like, "Hey, Uh, You know, I just wanted to say hi uh, for no reason at all. Uh, I'm just gonna, you know, I was like, so uh, where are you from in India? And he's like, I'm from Chicago. And I'm like, oh. Never mind, I'm just gonna go now. So uh, for Indians though, you know, 600 people at a wedding, that's a relatively small wedding, especially if the wedding's in India. It's not even uncommon for them to have like a thousand people at the wedding because over there, they don't just invite close friends and family, they invite everybody they know, right? And if you get invited to the wedding and you wanna bring some people with you, Go for it. No problem at all. And uh, say you're at home one day, you look out the window down the street, there's a wedding going on, then you just go, right? And they hand you a plate and you watch the ceremony, you eat some food and you have a good time. It's a community event. And so that's what we have here with Jesus and his disciples. They're invited to this wedding. It's, a, it's an event for the whole community, for the whole town. And Jewish weddings were awesome. I don't know if they're still awesome today, but those old school, keeping it real Jewish weddings, they were the real deal, right? are not talking just a public feast. We're talking like a seven-day-long city block party right and the bride and groom for the wedding day this would be the biggest day of their life socially it would be welcoming them as adults into the community and so the setting here what we have as they're at this wedding a few days into it maybe this is the first day second day third day whatever the point is that early on in the wedding they've run out of wine and you got to understand it's hard for us to understand this in our culture because we'd be like all right, we ran out of wine. You guys can, can all drink Kool-Aid or something. I don't care. But in their culture, this was a disaster. That's what you need to see. That's the setting of the story. It's a disaster. We're one or two days into this feast. The family's run out of wine. That's the single most important element to the wedding feast. And essentially, that means that the party's over. Not to mention that this is a what they call a shame and honor culture, which means that this would bring shame upon the whole family in the community. For them, this This isn't just a bummer. It isn't just a slight oversight. This is a disaster. So throughout the Bible, what we have is a symbol of joy, and there are numerous symbols of joy, but here we have a few of them, and it's important to take note of. The first one is wine throughout the Bible is a symbol of joy. Also, there's a big party. This is another symbol of joy and rejoicing. There's a wedding. It's a time of joy and rejoicing. But here the setting for Jesus' first miracle is a wedding, a time of rejoicing that has been brought to an abrupt halt. And in place of joy, there's great disappointment. Instead of elation, there's deflation. Instead of celebration, there's shame. The party is officially over. Joy has turned into shame. That's our setting. And as before we move on, I want you to see the setting here. How much is this not a metaphor of life in this world? We were created for a party. We were created for joy. But what do we have instead? We have shame right? The party has been messed up. It's over. Instead of celebration, there's shame. Instead of elation, which we were created for, we have deflation. The party's been brought to a halt. Secondly, we see a symbol of cleansing. First, we saw a symbol of joy. Now we have a symbol of cleansing. In verse 3, we read that Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes and tells Jesus, they have run out of wine. Now, this wasn't just a report. She wasn't just giving him the gossip, the scoop, the the dirt, right? She's asking for help. This is a request. She's asking Jesus to come in and do something about the problem. And look at Jesus' response in verse 4. He says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Uh, My hour has not yet come. Now, some of you are reading that and you're wondering, how can Jesus talk to his mother that way? You're saying, if I talk to my wife that way, uh, I probably wouldn't wake up tomorrow. I would mysteriously die in my sleep, and my body would never be found. And the, the women are like, yes, that's right. Maybe I would consider taking out an insurance policy on you if, uh, if you start talking to me that way. But first of all, you need to see that this term woman was a term of respect. It was, uh, was kind of like in our day, the word ma'am. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at the woman caught in adultery. Jesus said to her, woman, where are your accusers? That wasn't a disrespectful way of speaking to someone that was like saying nowadays the word ma'am so uh, Jesus is also though he's not being overly friendly and open though right he's saying he's pushing back he's not just saying okay mom whatever you want and the key phrase here is this one that he says he says my hour has not yet come now what does that mean That's really important. That's really interesting uh, that we understand that, to understand all that's going on in this first miracle here of Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. So keep that in mind. But Mary tells the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, these did you know that these are actually the last words of Mary recorded in the entire Bible? This is the last word. This is the last thing Mary has to say to us before she stops talking to us in the Bible, and this is the last word she says. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Now that's some good advice, let me tell you, for all of us. If Jesus tells you to do something, you should do it. But you know what? That's a lot easier said than done, and I realize that even as I say this, right? If you look at some of the things that Jesus said, he he makes these statements about radical generosity. He makes these radical statements about love and forgiveness. He makes these statements about radical devotion to God above all else, And you realize quickly, as you actually look at the words of Jesus, that to actually do everything that Jesus said is no simple task. And these are the last words we have recorded by Mary. Uh, Whatever he says, do it. So in verse 6, we read that Jesus instructs the servants to take these six stone jars, which were used for Jewish ceremonial purification, and they're to fill them with water. So these guys do it. And then Jesus tells them to draw out some of the water and serve it to the master of ceremonies. So they do. And now this water has become wine, but not only wine, it's become excellent wine. Now, try to put yourself, though, in their shoes for just a moment. Jesus didn't tell them what he was doing. He didn't explain this to him. He didn't say, all right, guys, this might sound a little weird, but here's what I'm doing. I'm going to take this water. We're going to turn it into wine. It's going to be awesome. Now, he doesn't tell them what he's doing at all. He just tells them what to do. And notice this. Mary uh, had told the servants to obey Jesus, and they do. They obey Jesus even though they have no idea what in the world he's doing. Uh, in spite of whatever skepticism or reluctance they might have had, they fill these ceremonial stone jars with with water, and they take a big glass of it and serve it to the master of ceremonies. But it was as they obeyed that they saw a miracle happen right before their own eyes. And I want to tell you that that's how it's going to be in your life as well, that God oftentimes isn't going to give you The full picture right away. He's not going to tell you, well, this is what I'm doing here. This is what I'm working on. This is what's coming around the bend in your life. This is what I'm preparing you for. No, he's just going to tell you what to do. Take this step. Do that. Love them. Forgive do that let go those kind of things and as you obey what he tells you to do step by step you will see miracles happen and we see that throughout the bible think about the the feeding of the 5000 he's got this small amount of food and he says all right just go start passing it out And they could have argued, they could have said, this is not enough, right? These guys could have said, if I give a glass of purification water to the master of ceremonies, I think he's going to kick me out, right? That's a weird thing to do. But it's as you are obedient... As you are obedient, in spite of whatever skepticism or reluctance you might have, in spite of whatever doubt you might have as to the effectiveness of what he's telling you to do, I encourage you to do it because as you do, you'll see God work in mighty ways in your life right before your eyes. Here's one thing I want you to think about. Why is he using these pots, right? Why would he use these pots, which were for ceremonial cleansing? I mean, think about it. They've run out of wine. Probably there had been a lot of wine, and a lot of people showed up. Probably they had tons of wine, and and if they ran out, that means that they had containers that they had the old wine in. So why doesn't Jesus just rinse out those containers? Wouldn't that make more sense than using these pots, which were for a specific use, for ceremonial washing, For a religious ritual. Why does he use these pots? This was actually, I want you to see this. This was a strange thing that Jesus was doing. In our day, this would be kind of like if you're at a wedding reception and you run out of iced tea and you're like, you know what, we should really make some more iced tea. And people hand you a bunch of iced tea pitchers and you say, no thanks, I'm going to go make it in the baptismal. People would be like, well, that's weird because that's what this was. This was weird. It was a strange place to choose to make some more beverages. Uh, The the more you consider it, though, the more you realize that Jesus didn't just choose this ceremonial cleansing pot because it was the only thing available. It wasn't just because this was the only thing he had on hand. This was for the purpose of making a statement, that this was something significant that Jesus was saying by using those pots for that purpose. So what is Jesus doing? What is he doing? Here's here's part of it. He's linking joy and cleansing. He's linking joy with cleansing. So these pots were generally used for ritual cleansing. Old Testament Judaism was full of rituals and sacrifices, and they all pointed to one thing, that there's something wrong with us. That's what they were all about. They all pointed to the fact that there is something fundamentally wrong with you, and there's something fundamentally wrong with me. We have a deep spiritual need. The point of all these cleansings, these washings, these sacrifices for atonement, for pardons, the whole point was this. There's something wrong with you. There's something fundamentally wrong. God is holy and perfect, but you are flawed. You are stained. There is something wrong with you. There's something about you that needs to be washed clean. There's something about you that needs to be covered up. And we all feel that, right? Why do we work so hard, right? Why do we overwork? Why do we try to prove ourselves all the time? Because all of us know that there's something about us that's wrong. There's something about us that needs to be cleansed, that needs to be covered up. Otherwise, we understand that we do not match up with the holy God. And that's what all the rituals of the Old Testament spoke of. So here's the picture before we move on. Jesus puts, takes these pots, which are for ceremonial cleansing, and he makes wine in them so that the party that was ruined can start back up again. So that the shame which has come on these people can be removed. So that the festivities which have stopped can continue once again. So we have a symbol of joy, then we have a symbol of cleansing, and we see that somehow these two are linked. And that brings us to number three, our final point. A sign of what is to come. Now think about this. This was the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. Not only was it a miracle, but verse 11 tells us that it was more than a miracle. Verse 11 says that it was a sign. It signified something. It it says there in verse 11 that it was through this miracle that Jesus first revealed his glory, his true identity to others. In other words, through this miracle, Jesus makes a statement about who he is and why he came, right? But think about this. And have you ever really considered this? Why was this Jesus' first miracle? You know, I mean, why not something else? He did so many different things, but why is this his first miracle? Here he is, the Messiah. People have been waiting for him to come for thousands of years, and now here he is, and you'd think that he would burst on the scene and do like a David Copperfield type of thing, like make the temple disappear or something awesome like that. But instead, here's what he does. He's at a wedding, and he turns water into wine. Why? So the party can continue. It's good wine, but still, this is his first public statement of who he is and why he came. And he doesn't heal a sick person. He doesn't cast out a demon. He doesn't feed the hungry. No, in Jesus' first miracle, he turns water into wine in order to keep the party going. That's Jesus' big statement of who he is and why he came. John said this was a sign of why he came and who he was. This is his big statement. I came to get the party started again I came to take away shame and to restore joy and maybe you say hey I thought that Jesus came in order to humble himself in order to empty himself in order to lose his glory and be rejected and go to the cross and die in our place isn't that why Jesus came well yes he he did come to do all those things but this gives us some perspective why did he come to do all those things? Why the suffering? Why the sacrifice? Why the loss? Why the pain? Why all of it? It was for a purpose. And it was all a means to an end. All the suffering. The Bible tells us that it was all for joy. Everything that Jesus did, the end goal of everything, was joy. It says in Hebrews 12, too, that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning his shame. The reason that Jesus came, the reason Jesus did everything he did was to restore festival joy. Where it's been broken, where it's been lost, in your life, where it's been replaced by shame, Jesus came to bring joy out of sorrow. He came to turn mourning into laughter. And that is true for every one of us who's here today. It's true of all of you. You need to know that that the goal and purpose of Jesus' coming was to bring joy. He came to take away shame and restore joy. Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding feast. Why? Because the reason Jesus came was for feasting and for joy. In Psalm 34, the psalm writer says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing, those are senses, right? These are sensory words. The psalm writer is basically saying, I know that you know that God is good. But I want you to not just know it, I want you to taste it. I want you to feel it. I want you to experience it deeply. I want you to have a feast. I want you to drink deep of his goodness and experience it in all of its richness. You know, when the Bible describes for us what heaven is going to be like, we don't read about angels sitting on clouds, strumming on harps. We don't read about people in white robes singing in gospel choirs like in Sister Act or something, you know. We don't read about just people sitting around in mansions, bored out of their minds because it feels like eternity, because it is eternity, right? But That's not what we read about. When we read about uh, heaven, the Bible describes it many times over and over as this great feast, right? Like this wedding feast, this big party full of food and drink and festivity and joy. Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 8, one of my favorites, it says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. And not only that, the Bible says that God doesn't want us to relate to him as a king relates to his subjects. He wants to relate to us as a groom relates to his bride. And so all of history is building up, we read in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it all ends with this great wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. That's what his birth, his life, his death, all of the suffering was all for. So that we could become the bride of Christ, the people whom God loved the people on whom he places his love to whom he's faithful the people he chooses for himself to finally be united with him and so Jesus' first appearance is at a wedding feast because ultimately this is the reason he came his first miracle is a statement of that it's who he is it's why he's come But in this first miracle where Jesus turns water into wine, he also gives us a sign of how he's going to bring that about. How he's going to do all those things that he hopes to do. How he's going to bring about this feast to end all feasts. It's a sign of how he will remove shame. How he will restore joy. How he'll get the party started again. Do you remember what Jesus said to his mother? I said we'd come back to it, right? He said to his mother, This cryptic statement, it it seemed a bit odd. It seemed even a bit out of place. And And in a way, maybe it was. She asked him, Jesus, do something to fix this problem. And his response was, my hour has not yet come. What's he talking about? Why is he saying that? If you read through the Gospel of John, what you'll notice, if you read carefully, is that Jesus refers to his hour On numerous occasions, and every time he uses this phrase, my hour, which is coming, my hour's coming, every time he uses this phrase, he's always speaking about his death. My hour has not yet come. His statement, his hour, it's the the moment of his death on the cross. And so get the picture here. Jesus is saying to his mother, she comes and says, Jesus, we need some more wine. And he says to her, why are you telling me this? It's not time for me to die yet. And you're like, what? What? this this doesn't fit right why well what's she asking him she's asking him to intervene she's asking him to get the wedding feast started again can you come can you remove the shame of these people can you restore joy to these people and in response Jesus says don't you know it's not time for me to die yet isn't that a strange response How does that fit? How does Jesus make this jump from his mom asking for wine in the moment to him talking about his death in the future? Well, think about what she's asking him to do again. Remember verse 11, it told us that this miracle was a sign. It was a signifier. It was a symbol. It was a foreshadowing. It embodied all that Jesus came to do. Everything that he is and what he came to do, he had come to intervene. He had come to get the wedding feast going. He had come to remove shame and joy. And so here's Jesus, and he's at this wedding feast. And as his mother asks him for help, he just looks at the scene there, right? At this wedding. And when what he's seeing is an earthly example, a picture of everything that he has come to do and accomplish. And as he does, he looks at the bride and groom, but he looks past that bride and groom. He looks to his own bride. He looks past that wedding at Cana and he sees the wedding for which he came. He has his eyes on something else as he looks around that wedding that day, as he hears this need for intervention, this need for the party which has stopped to get going again, this need for shame to be removed and joy to be restored. He has his eyes on a different wedding feast. He has his eyes on something which is yet to come, and he's thinking about what he is going to have to do in order to make that happen, in order for that feast to happen. He says to Mary, yes, I can bring joy to the world. Yes, I can bring guilt out of shame. Yes, I can bring joy out of sorrow, but in order to do that, I'm going to have to die. And it's not time for that yet. And so Jesus, as a sign of what is to come, he tells these servants to fill up these jars which are used for ritual cleansing and to make wine in those jars. And think about this. It was as the people drank from that wine which was made from the water of ritual cleansing that joy was restored and the wedding feast was saved and shame was removed. Three years after this, at another feast... As they shared in the the Last Supper, Jesus would take a cup full of wine, and he would say to those disciples who, who had witnessed this first miracle three years earlier, and he would say to them, Take and drink. This is my blood, which is poured out for you, for the forgiveness, or poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So here we have wine, this symbol of joy in the scriptures, but it's also a symbol of something else that Jesus gave us, the symbol of Jesus' blood which was shed for us. Do you see the picture? Do you see it coming together? The ritual cleansing that the Old Testament required people to do, it it forced them to acknowledge the fact that they were unclean. That there was something wrong with them, but that's not all it did. It, it never, well, I'm sorry, but that is all it did. It never solved the problem. It just made you acknowledge the problem. It made you aware of it. All of us know deep down that what's fundamentally wrong with us, the source of our shame, the root of our brokenness is not something we can fix with any outward solution. There's no amount of success, there's no amount of accomplishment that can take away the sense of shame that we all have deep down inside. There's no outward solution, there's no human relationship that can fix the inward problem we have because it's a problem of our heart. And so here's Jesus and he declares, I have come to restore joy. I have come to take away shame and here's how I'm gonna do it. First, you gotta acknowledge that there's something wrong, but once you do that, I'm shedding my blood for you so that you can be cleansed, so you can be pure on the inside, right? Drink deep of it. The first miracle that Jesus performed, it was a sign of what is to come. When Jesus would die on the cross in our place so that by his blood we could be made clean, not just outwardly, but inwardly, so that we could drink deep of the salvation and we could taste and we could see his goodness now in part in your situation, even if you're in sorrow today, now in part and in the future in fullness in eternity to come. One writer put it this way, speaking of this text, he said, Jesus sat amidst the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the cup of his own coming sorrow, so that all those who believe in him can sit amongst the sorrow of the world, sipping the cup of coming joy. Right now, we're going to have the band come back up, and, uh, and we're going to worship some more. And we're going to take communion. We have the table set up right over here. Every time we take communion together, what we are doing is we are remembering, we are celebrating, and we are declaring the gospel. We're declaring it to ourselves, and we're declaring it in the world. By taking the communion, you are declaring that you believe that the death of of Jesus Christ on the cross, that by it you are saved and you are cleansed from your shame, that it's been removed and that through him you have received a new identity. So whether it's your first time today or your 500th time, I encourage you, share in communion with us and by doing so, make that statement that you receive the forgiveness of sins, that you receive the cleansing of your shame, that you receive the restoration of the joy that Jesus came to accomplish for you on the cross. As you partake in communion over these next few songs, remember those things, and as you do it, remember this also, that this is a foretaste of the feast that will end all feasts, the wedding feast of the Lamb. We get to take a foretaste of that this morning. Would you stand with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood shed for us. Lord, we thank you that your blood, Lord, is able to cleanse us of our sin. Lord, it's able to cleanse us from the source of our shame, Lord, and by doing so, it's able to restore joy. It's able to welcome us into the wedding feast of the Lamb. Lord, I pray for all those who are experiencing sorrow in some area of their life today. Lord, would you turn their sorrow into joy? Lord, thank you that ultimately all sorrow will be turned into joy. Lord, you will remove our disgrace at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Lord, we will experience joy in its fullness. Lord, we we thank you that we can have a, a reminder of that, a taste of that this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you died for us. Thank you for your love for us. And we remember that as we partake in your body and your blood this morning. In Jesus' name.